Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. In today's episode, we're hearing from you. As we've done in previous quarters, following our quarterly accounting webcast, we sifted through viewer submissions to find the most frequently asked questions. We then brought a few of our most seasoned team members back together to bring you the answers to this quarter's top questions. Joining me from their homes are Cody Smith, Andreas Ohl, Chad Soares, Suzanne Stefani, and Ryan Spencer. I'm happy to have each one of them and their expertise with me today. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get started. So this is always one of my favorite podcasts of the quarter, and especially excited this time to be bringing together the podcasts that we've been doing and sort of reminders for the end of the quarter with our podcast with the frequently asked questions from the webcast. So happy to have all of you with me here today, and I'll introduce you as we go along and I ask questions, but Cody, definitely want to start with you, and I think you have a unique vantage point because I know you spend a lot of time talking to all of our different specialists as you prepare to put together the quarter close and then also even work with Suzanne on the topics for the webcast. So what are the key areas that kept coming up in those conversations? Yeah, Heather. So as we went through that and we were preparing to do the quarter close, the things that we uh, kept coming up and that we made it for the list that what we would put in the quarter close include trouble debt restructurings, uh, leasing issues, tax valuation allowances, uh, government assistance, we're seeing a fair amount of that. And then COVID-19 disclosures was uh, probably the top things that we have in the publication that people should consider. Okay, so I'm going to come back to government assistance for a minute and ask you a question on that. But before we get to that, any other topics that you heard come up, but maybe didn't quite make it into the quarter close or um, the webcast, partially probably because we had other publications on those items? Yeah, I think the last couple of quarters, Heather, the two issues that we could coming up and um, and we we didn't put in because of the space include stock comp modifications. Uh, we're seeing a number of those when uh, there's a compensation arrangement with employees and those are modified um, in, in this environment. And then the other thing that we had in there, too, was going concern um, and going concern considerations and looking at liquidity and those types of things. But that was a, another area that uh, didn't make it in the publication. But having said that, there is guidance out there that we've put out to assist people. We do have a podcast on stock comp modifications that, that people could look at. And then we also have it in the loop about going concern and liquidity uh, disclosure. So if those are a couple of things that companies are facing, I'd recommend taking a look at those uh, things that we've put out. Good. Thanks, Cody. So then, as um, I mentioned earlier, we're going to hit a lot of those webcast topics later in the podcast. But specifically, I wanted to ask you about government grant accounting. Can you give us just a quick summary of the questions that we're seeing there? Sure, Heather. Um, And when we talk about government grants, I might make it a little bit broader and talk about government assistance. And that can come in many forms. And and what we're seeing is, um, and and we do cover this in, in another podcast, is looking at particularly the government as your customer. So you're just in ASC 606 and it's a revenue transaction, or we have income tax uh, credits, which we would be in the income tax guidance. And then they also have government assistance in the form of below market loans. And probably the, the most you know prevalent thing that comes to mind there is the payroll protection program. But then we can have other forms of assistance where there really is no direct gap that's on point. And then we get into uh, how to account for that. 
you know, there there is um, IAS 20, which is a IFRS standard, and a lot of people look to that for guidance. And then we also have guidance in not-for-profit entities, which for profit companies isn't a natural place to go, but there is contribution guidance in there, which can be helpful. Yeah, I was just going to say, Cody, I know um, I had uh, Angela Ferguson and Pat Durbin on a podcast and definitely a lot to think about in this area. And given all the government funding with the CARES program, definitely something I would encourage people to check out if they're dealing with those issues. And, you know, that's one area that requires judgment as you think ahead to the quarter close, uh, plan words there. Any other sort of judgmental areas that you would recommend people keep an eye on? Yeah, I I think so. You know, we uh, again, we talked about impairments and impairments are always top of mind. We're getting a lot of questions there. And while things are better than they were earlier in the year, you know, the stock market is still a bit rocky. The government stimulus is drying up. And I think the um, the thing that people should think about is that a lot of people do their annual impairment testing in Q4. Um, so that might cause one to say, well, I'm going to do it in Q4 and I don't have to really worry that much in Q3. But I think all of the things that have been difficult to account for earlier in the year and may become difficult to account for later in the year. And I don't think that companies should take their eye off of Q3 and they really need to think about impairments and whether or not there's any of those in Q3. Brings me to a topic I know we've talked about before, which is disclosures in the area of impairment and just the importance of foreshadowing. Is that something people should be thinking about at Q3? Uh, Yeah, Heather, I think that they should. Because again, I mean, when we get these consultations and there's an impairment in a a particular quarter, we naturally ask the question, how do you know that the impairment shouldn't have been taken earlier? And so if a company is doing its annual testing in Q4 and happens to have an impairment, then the natural question is going to be, was that impairment there on September 30th? And to the extent that there's a, a, an asset group or a reporting unit at risk, then a company should be considering the foreshadowing disclosures in Q3 if they think that there's a possibility that they'll have an impairment in Q4. Okay. And then, Cody, that's a perfect lead into a topic I always like talking to you about, which is just disclosures more broadly. Anything else companies should think about from a Q3 perspective? Yeah, Heather, I think is obviously we've talked about COVID-19 disclosures before, how they need to be robust and company specific. And the SEC has started asking some questions. I'm not sure that we'd call it a trend yet, but the SEC has started issuing comments and they're, they're focused on what we would think around liquidity and debt covenants and those types of things. We've also seen a couple of questions on a company's disaggregated revenue disclosures, the ASC 606 and the revenue disclosures there. And the issue becomes when a company's out and perhaps in an earnings release or other communications to the press talking about the COVID-19 impacts and they're talking about revenue at a level that's different than what they've disclosed, that has drawn a comment or two. And then the last thing that I think I'd mention here to our, our listeners is fair value disclosures and, and those measures uh, that are made on a non-recurring basis. So um, we do have disclosures around those fair value measurements, and the SEC has started asking questions about that, too. Okay, great. So, Andreas, let me turn to you next. And I know we got a lot of questions about impairment on the webcast. Some of these, I think we've answered in other podcasts and other venues, but let's run through them again, because obviously still questions in this area. So the first question is an interesting one, and it's saying, if the entity-specific cash flows in step one of the impairment test indicate that the carrying amount of the asset group isn't recoverable, but the fair value assessment in step two 
indicates that the fair value of the asset group is higher than its carrying value, what should you do? Yeah, so Heather, I, ASC 360 is pretty clear that you um, only have a uh, an impairment to the extent that the fair value is less than the carrying value, obviously after you fail the first step. So this fact pattern where you have the recoverable amount is uh, is is lower, but the fair value is higher is is something that we don't see that often. And so typically what we would advise companies to do in this circumstance is that they should first probably take a look at their asset groupings to make sure that they have that correct, that maybe something hasn't changed in, in recent times. And the second thing is to really sharpen their pencil when looking at the fair value assumptions that they uh, applied in uh, in the model. Because um, effectively what this fact pattern implies is that a market participant could make much better use of those assets. And that's why the fair value is higher than the, uh, than the sort of the in-use value. Okay. So then Andreas, you're saying this could happen, but if it does happen, then really look at the assumptions you've made to make sure all the pieces fit together properly. That's right. Okay. All right. Let's go on to another one. This is talking about right of use assets. So on this one, when a right of use asset for leased office space is in an asset group that has not experienced a triggering event, but the office space has been abandoned, is it appropriate to recognize an impairment loss for the right of use asset? Yeah, so it, it wouldn't be appropriate to take a loss in this circumstance uh, either. You know, so impairment trigger events, as we've discussed in, in, in other venues, right, is only happen at the asset group level. And so what's happening with an individual lease may not be indicative of what's happening at the uh, asset group level. Now, that, that being said, when you have plans to abandon an asset and maybe it's not impaired at, uh, at that point in time, you should be looking at the useful life of the asset because what you typically do in that circumstance is you adjust the life to be up until the point of abandonment. And then you're going to amortize the right of use asset from the time you make that decision to abandon until the expected abandonment date. So you depreciate it down to the, the, the salvage value that it'll have, if any, at the time of the abandonment. So in, in this case where you've already abandoned, you probably have a circumstance where back at the time that the plan was uh, formulated to abandon, at that point, you would have adjusted the amortization life and maybe you'd be down to something close to zero at the point of abandonment. And so while that has maybe a similar P&L consequence to a impairment, it would actually show up as depreciation rather than as an impairment charge. Okay, let's go on then one more for you, Andreas. So in this case, a company's vacated leased office space and they're actively seeking a tenant to sublease the space, but they haven't had any luck finding a tenant. So assuming that this office space is a separate asset group, when would the company experience an impairment triggering event? Yeah, so similar to the previous question, uh, you know, trigger events at the asset group level depends how significant this asset is to the asset group. So, you know, 360 lists a number of different things that could be triggers, and one of them is a, a significant adverse change in the extent or manner in which the long lived asset is used. And so, moving from use to sublease might, in fact, uh, Trip the triggering event again, depending upon how significant the the leased asset is to the overall asset group. One other thing to consider is that uh, once you go down the sublease path, it is possible that the uh, the subleased asset then becomes its own asset group, 
in which case then you would uh, do the impairment test at that level as opposed to the overall asset group level. All right, Chad, I'm going to turn to you almost a follow-on for some of what we were just talking about, but again, a specific fact pattern. But let me give a little background first. So in the context of impairment of ROU assets, we just talked about the fact you have to do the impairment test when there's a triggering event. And in some cases, that triggering event could happen before a lessee tries to go to the lessor to modify or maybe even terminate the lease. So that's like our backdrop. So with all of that said... What happens if a lessee takes an impairment charge, then subsequently terminates the lease? If there's a gain with the modification or termination, can the lessee reverse the impairment charge? You know, it's an interesting question, Heather. The right of use asset gets written down with the impairment charge, but that has no impact on the liability at all. That remains in place uh, regardless of what the write down is for the asset. So now let's say that subsequent to the impairment, able, the lessee is able to negotiate a full termination in a future quarter. They would then take the lease liability and any remaining right of use assets off their books. In all likelihood, the liability would exceed the asset because of the impairment. So you're looking in all likelihood at some kind of gain recognition. Certainly people have asked whether they should effectively record that gain as a reversal of the impairment charge and run it through the, C, the same P&L line item. You know, our view is that the modification is independent of the impairment, and the impairment should not be reversed. And that's pretty consistent with how we would think about anything that uh, relates to an asset subject to impairment that's ultimately settled. Let's say it's a debt or some other arrangement. You follow the relevant gap for the termination accounting under lease accounting uh, as if the impairment sort of never happened. So that's how we would reflect it. Chad, that's helpful. But since our viewers aren't here to ask the following question, I'm going to ask the natural one, which is in listening to you, it sounds like the net impact, whether you reverse it or not, is, is basically the same. Yeah, that's right. It's really around P&L geography of where you put it. The impairment would stay and typically on a lease termination, we'd expect any gain that results to be reflected as a reduction of rent expense, of lease expense in the income statements. Let's then turn to actually something that happened after our first webcast, but it's an area we've gotten a few subsequent questions on, and that would be the lease roundtable that was held on, I believe, September 18th. And so first of all, maybe just for people who aren't familiar, can you just explain exactly what this was and why the FASB held it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a roundtable. So the FASB is as part of thinking about post-implementation challenges with the leasing standard thinking about getting feedback on areas that were challenging or perhaps areas where additional education or standard setting may be helpful. Remember, while public companies have adopted this standard, there are many private companies that haven't yet. So it takes on even greater importance because there's an opportunity perhaps to make their journey a little bit easier. Okay. And then Chad, who participated in the roundtable? It's a broad group of people that participate. So obviously the FASB is there. Um, but in addition, you're going to have both financial statement users and preparers as well as accounting firms, certain industry representatives, et cetera. And then was there a set, how, what's the format for something like this if people aren't familiar with it? There were two sessions. One was a morning session, one was an afternoon session. And it was basically broke up into, it was broken up into two groups of people who participated. And the objective really was feedback to the FASB. They did provide some topics that they wanted to discuss and some materials in advance of the meeting. And broadly speaking, the question's really centered around how to think about the discount rate in lease accounting for lessees, identification of arrangements where lease accounting applies, such as cases where you have a, a contract that may not be a lease itself, but may have lease elements in it, 
um, discussions about how to make lease modification accounting sort of less costly and complex. And finally, thinking about allocating contract consideration between lease arrangements uh, and non-lease arrangements when you're dealing with the initial allocation. And then, Chad, did any new themes come up during the roundtable, the things that might be a takeaway? Yeah, you know, it's a little early to tell. We don't really know yet what's going to come out of this. The FASB staff will prepare a plan for the board to consider. It's possible we may get some proposed standard setting, additional guidance, or what have you. But we'll really have to wait and see how they feel uh, following the roundtable. All right, Chad, thank you. Very helpful. So then with that, why don't we turn to our next topic, which is troubled debt restructurings. And I'm very happy to say that I have our webcast producer, Suzanne Stefani, on to help me with this. And many of you know Suzanne from some of her other podcast appearances. And she's, in fact, one of our uh, debt modification specialists. So I thought it'd be perfect to have her. So Suzanne, thanks. And uh, with all of that, let me share with you the questions we had. So The first one, I'm going to just paraphrase from the question we got. So the CARES Act provided financial institutions with optional relief where they wouldn't have to account for certain short-term debt modifications as troubled debt restructurings. Is this relief something that's available to all borrowers or are borrowers able to analogize to this guidance? Um, Yeah, unfortunately, no, borrowers can't apply this relief. So the relief was only given to financial institutions. So lenders, when they meet certain conditions and these modifications were due to COVID-19. So the thought behind the relief was that lenders, they would be dealing with many, many hundreds, thousands of modifications all at once due to the impact of the pandemic on their customers. And this, this relief, what it does is it allows the lender not to have to make that kind of judgmental, difficult determination if their customers are facing financial difficulty, which, as you can imagine, would be very daunting task if they have to do it for many, many modifications at once. So that's why they were able to get that relief, right? Because it would have been such a daunting task. But borrowers, on the other hand, if you think about it, they're not dealing with hundreds or thousands of restructurings all at once. They probably have one, maybe two. And although the financial difficulties determination for them can be judgmental, like John mentioned on the webcast, I think it's safe to say it's certainly easier for the borrower to make that determination than for the lender to have to do it. Okay. So then Suzanne, in this circumstance, if I'm the borrower, I just need to go ahead and follow the guidance that John went through on the webcast and assess whether or not I have a TDR. Right. Okay, perfect. So then why don't we go on to the other question I have for you today? And this is kind of an amalgamation of some, a question I know we get frequently, which is that if I have a circumstance where the company has two debt instruments that are outstanding with one lender, so let's say tranche A loan and tranche B loan, but then they only modify tranche A. From an accounting perspective, would the tranche B loan also be impacted by the tranche A modification? Yeah, we get this question a lot. And yes, it can be impacted. So the debt restructuring guidance, it has to be done on a lender by lender basis, not instrument by instrument. So that means when a company is assessing what the accounting should be for the restructuring of, say, tranche A in your example, they'd also have to factor in tranche B into that assessment as well. So for example, you know, John spoke about determining if there was a concession in a restructuring. So in this example, the borrower would have to include the cash flows of tranche A 
and Tranche B in the concession test, even though Tranche B wasn't actually changed. So the reason behind that or the thought is that when a lender is determining what kind of deal they're going to give to the borrower, they would certainly be thinking about their position with the company overall, right? Like Tranche A and Tranche B. So maybe Tranche B has an above market interest rate already. So when they're modifying Tranche A, they're going to be more willing to lower the rate because they know they they already have an above market rate in tranche B. So the thought is to include all the lenders' debt in the assessment to really get the true picture of the economics and what's going on here because you want to account for it based on the real substance, not the form. And and actually, this is true not just for TDRs, but for any debt restructuring. All right, Suzanne, very helpful. So now let's turn our attention to SEC matters. And Ryan, I know we've gotten some questions around the expansion of the human capital disclosures required by Regulation SK. And specifically, the questions we're seeing is whether or not the amended rules provide any specific examples of the types of human capital measures that should be disclosed. Yeah, Heather, good good question. The, the answer is no. The, the amended rules did not, by design, include any specific examples. Uh, the SEC said in the adopting release that it, that it recognizes that the exact measures and objectives included in the disclosure may evolve over time and, and could depend and very significantly based on a, a number of company and, and industry-specific factors. So accordingly, they adopted a principles-based approach, uh, affording companies the flexibility to tailor the disclosures to, to their specific circumstances. They did, however, in the final rule, list potentially relevant subjects, such as those that address the attraction, development, and retention of personnel, but emphasized in the adopting release that these are potentially relevant examples of subject areas and are not mandates. Interesting. And I definitely recommend if our listeners have more questions on this, that they check out uh, the in-depth that was released, um, that we do provide a little more information. So that's available on CFODirect.com. So Ryan, why don't we turn our attention then to another area where I know we've received a lot of questions and that's around the effective date. So can you remind us of the rules around that and then give us some idea of what companies that may have a filing due in the next month or two should think about? Well, Heather, as the amended rules state, they will be effective 30 days after they are published in the Federal Register. And as of the morning of September 23rd, they have not yet been published. And the rules did not provide any transition type guidance. So absent any further guidance, we understand that the changes should be applied to any filing made on or after that effective date, whatever that date will be. Because they haven't been published in the Federal Register yet, uh, I just recommend that preparers watch this closely so that once it is published, they can determine their specific compliance date. Right. Because it sounds like something you don't want to be caught off guard if they get published right before you're making your filing. Yep. All right. So thank you, everyone, for all the insight today. Um, as always, definitely like to wrap up with our more fun question. And given the time of year, my question I've been asking on recent podcasts is whether you prefer summer to fall. So are you sad to see summer go um, or are you happy to see fall arriving? So Cody, I'll let you go first. Well, that's an interesting question. I was going to say fall, but um, we've had a couple of cool days here on the on the Northeast. And I'm starting to think that maybe I'm not looking forward to uh, putting on a jacket and raking leaves. But <laughs> how about spring? Can I choose spring? <laughs> spring. Uh, you need to come back for the uh, Q1 2021 and I'll ask you. So. Okay, that All sounds right. great. Thanks, Cody. And then let's go on to Chad. 
I live in Houston. Fall can't get here fast enough. Okay, fair point. And Andreas, how about you? Well, I live in New York Metro, and normally I would answer autumn, but uh, this morning it was 42 degrees here, so I think uh, I could do with a little bit more summer at this point. All right, and Suzanne? I'd have to say I'm with Chad on the fall. I love wearing sweaters. I like sweater weather. I like, I'm sorry, but I like anything pumpkin spice. And I like to go apple picking, pumpkin picking, et cetera. So definitely fall is the best for me. That does sound like a fun version of fall. All right. And then Ryan, last but not least, how about you? Yeah, so I I would say summer for sure. It's usually a closer call for me between summer and fall, but this year with everything going on and just the need to be outside, I would say summer. Yes, although fall means that we're getting closer to maybe the end of all of this. So um, anyway, as always, appreciate everyone's insights and thanks for joining me today. That's it for this quarter. For more quarterly resources, check out cfodirect.com. And join me back here this Thursday for the next episode in our What's Next series. In the final episode of our summer series, we're back with the latest results from our CFO Pulse survey. We've hit a few road to election topics, so you won't want to miss it. And join me back here next week for the first episode in our fall series, What's Next in Tech for Finance Professionals. So that you never miss an episode, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcast. And to stay up to date on the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.